Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to the Storytelling Lab, where we break down how to get to the heart of your story and the hearts of your audience to leave the greatest impact possible. And now here's your host, a filmmaker and competitive storyteller, Rain Bennett. What's up, my beautiful people? Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling Lab, where we help you break down the art and science of storytelling. My name is Rain Bennett. I am your host, and my job is to help you deepen your connections, increase your sales, and serve your audiences better. Every Monday morning, I send out a storytelling tip to my email subscribers, and I talk about how I have used it in my own storytelling for my clients and for myself, and I leave you with tangible advice on how you can apply it to your strategies. If this sounds like something that would interest you, go ahead and sign up for the newsletter at rainbennett.com slash weekly storytelling tips. Again, that's rainbennett.com slash weekly storytelling tips. This podcast is a Six Second Stories production. Six Second Stories is a video marketing agency that helps you tell heartfelt stories to maximize your impact in minimal time. Find out more about what we do at sixsecondstories.com. Special announcement, storytellers, I have launched my first online course. I've been waiting a long time. I've been so excited to do this. It is called Uncover the Story to Launch Your Personal Brand. Now, that last word, that last concept, personal brand, is one that I fought against. I resisted, folks, for a long, long time. And hey, flash forward, guess what? When I leaned into it, when I embraced it, when I cultivated a personal brand, the story that I tell others things started to unlock in whole new ways for me. I was able to build a business just off of who I was as a person. Instead of starting from scratch every time I started a brand new project and then bouncing and spinning around from project to project, the core of my business is me. 
and everything else is extended from that core. So if I want to be Rain Bennett, the podcaster, Rain Bennett, the author, Rain Bennett, the online course instructor, the storytelling coach, the keynote speaker, the filmmaker, they're all coming back to that same core personal brand. This is what I'm helping people do. I started coaching when the pandemic hit because all my speaking gigs stopped and it has impacted my life and I think it's impacted others' lives in such such a magnificent way, an unexpected way for me. Yes, I consulted with businesses and organizations, but I found the most profound impact by helping other people who had thoughts in the back of their head that they could do great things and serve people and make an impact on the world, but they just weren't sure how to access that thing within them. I helped them do that through finding their story. That has been so fulfilling for me, and I want to help you do that too. The thing is, not everybody can afford the over $1,000 of cost in the coaching package to do that. So I created a 14-lesson course that has all of the things and more that those coaching packages have, including a community of other storytellers so that you can share your experiences with and you can learn from them as well. All of this for $149. We will put the link to the course in the show notes. We are hosting the course on thinkific.com. It is called the Rain Bennett Storytelling School, and you can always find out information at rainbennett.com. Way back in 2005... When I was a wee little filmmaker, a wee little storyteller, just graduated college, just having my first job uh, in the film industry as a unit production manager for a virtually no budget, $10,000 budget uh, feature film. And after that finished, I had two other awesome gigs in 2005 that really stand out still to this day. One, I worked on season five, I think it was that year, of American Idol. Uh, They came to Greensboro, North Carolina, and I was a production assistant working with the contestants, and that was the year, uh, I don't think Kelly Pickler won that year, but uh, she made it pretty pretty far, and she made it pretty successful in, in terms of a music career. And I remember kind of flirting with her and calling her Albemarle because that's where she was from. Anyway, I digress. And the second thing that I did in 2005 was volunteer at the Full Frame Film Festival. Now, if you're not sure or haven't heard of that, it's one of the biggest documentary film festivals in the world, uh, definitely in North America. And it's right here in our backyard in Durham, North Carolina. And if you're not familiar with Durham, it's a town of, I don't know, I think it's like 100,000 people in uh, in North Carolina. Very cultured, reputable, historic town, but still not a big town. We have this huge festival in our tiny little downtown that's totally walkable. The, the whole downtown is walkable. Since about 1998, this festival has been around. And so in 2005, I volunteered there. And when I was volunteering, you could have any job that you really wanted. You could take tickets, you could, you know, a lot lot of menial tasks that that you could do. But there was also some tasks with a lot of responsibility. And one of them was a venue manager. So basically helping run the whole venue. And there, there are tons of films and, you know, thousands of people there. It's a really, a really big festival uh, over, over four days. And so the biggest uh, theater that they have is called Fletcher Hall. I believe it sits about a thousand people. And um, it's at the Carolina Theater in Durham. And the venue manager position for that 
venue was up for grabs and nobody wanted to take it. And I remember sitting there with all the the staff and the executive director and, and everybody trying to figure out who would do it. And finally, I was like, you know what? This is like, why volunteer if you're just going to take some small role? Like, I want to be a filmmaker. I want to make documentaries. I want to know these people. I want to do this stuff. I'm, let's go. My hand raised. Now, what was awesome about taking that role that year was they always have like an evening with dot, dot, dot. And some big filmmaker uh, is there talking about uh, just having a chat. And this was an evening with Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese was the I guess the guest or one of the guests of honor there that year. And this event, I worked, which meant that I got to attend the event, which was obviously in a, in a theater that seats a thousand people, like very high in demand. And I'm standing like 20 feet away from him because I'm right on the corner of the stage. And it was just like for a young aspiring filmmaker that was just like so, so amazing. And he was sitting on stage with the executive director and the executive director was Nancy Bursky, and she is my guest today on the show. I can't tell you how like full circle that feels, but also how excited I was to talk to her because after founding and running the, the documentary festival, Full Frame Documentary Festival, for probably 10 years, she, she then went on to make her own films. And has made several amazing award-winning films, one of which in 2011 you may be familiar with. I think this was her first her directorial debut, The Loving Story, about uh, the case of the, the interracial marriage in Virginia, of The Lovings was the name of the couple. And they got married in D.C. and didn't realize that interracial marriage at that point uh, was illegal in Virginia. And so they fought that case. The Loving case is, is what made interracial marriage legal in Virginia. And so for anyone who knows me personally, or maybe has listened to the show enough, you know that I'm in an interracial relationship. I'm raising biracial children for people like me and for all of us. And I mentioned this on the show, hugely important, amazing film, so touching, so important to our culture and our society. And so personally, uh, important to me and my family. And that was Nancy's first film. And it was amazing. And she made it in partnership with Elizabeth, Elizabeth uh, Haviland James, also here in Durham, uh, who's an amazing documentary filmmaker as well. I almost worked with her uh, on a project as her associate producer years and years ago. Didn't happen. She's still awesome. Um, and Nancy has gone on to make a ton of other great films. And I had her on the show to talk about this because... Obviously, you know, I come from the filmmaking background and filmmaking in terms of storytelling is obviously there, but also storytelling as a, as a whole, as a society, our, our collective narratives that we subscribe to, whether they're wrong or whether we're changing that narrative. Films are such, documentaries are such a powerful way at impacting, changing those narratives when we need to. And this, this is the type of work that Nancy does. She has done lots of work in the social justice and civil rights spaces, not just the loving story, but the rape of Reese Taylor. And this year, this next week, actually, on June 18th, her new film comes out, A Crime on the Bayou, on June 18th in New York and, uh, and L.A., in theaters, 
how awesome is that that we're back in theaters? And this is the story, if you're not familiar with this, about, uh, uh, I forget his first name, but his last name was Duncan. It was Duncan versus the case uh, versus the state of Louisiana. Went to the Supreme Court. It's a teenager, like 19 years old, fisherman. And it was just when schools had been integrated in Louisiana, like a month in. And he was driving past a school and saw his like nephew or cousin or cousins being harassed by four white boys. So he pulled in there and went to break up the fight and touched one of the white boys on the arm. And then later that night, cops came to his house and arrested him for assault on a minor for touching the white boy's arm. And he had a Jewish lawyer that came to help him and take on his case. And they took it all the way, all the way to the Supreme Court. And it's a huge case in terms of civil rights and equal rights that we have in this country. These are the types of things that Nancy stands for. Not just pushing the art of storytelling, but the purpose of storytelling. She says these great lines in this episode about the responsibility that we have, especially white filmmakers and white storytellers. Yes, we have a responsibility to uphold and uplift and give space to black storytellers, but we also have a responsibility to ourselves, too, to help share stories that have been historically suppressed. And I take a lot of pride in that because I'm working on one of those. I'm more, you may have heard me talk on the show about finding Croatoa and the story of the lost colony. And there's a lot of elements of white supremacy and controlling historical narrative that is embedded in that story. And I cannot wait to bring it to the masses. But what I don't have to wait for is this amazing conversation that I had with Nancy and I'm so grateful for her time. And I told her the little story about Fletcher Hall because, of course, she, she wouldn't remember that. But it was so impactful for me. And I know that I'm not the only life that, that, that Nancy has touched through her work and all the amazing things that she's done. I'm super grateful for her, for being a filmmaker, like her making films the way she does, for being in the same space that she is, documentary filmmaking, and for spending a little time with me and having a chat on the show. So here's my conversation with Nancy Bursky, and I hope that you love it. Again, welcome to the show. Appreciate your time. Um, so I don't know, I'm sure you, I mean, you definitely don't remember this, but we've actually met before a long, long time ago in the, in the full frame days. Uh, I think I volunteered there. I was just getting out of college in 2005 and, and, uh, I remember it was the year that uh, uh, Martin Scorsese was there, and um, and I was a venue manager for for Fletcher, and it was like my first year. And I remember oh <laughs> we we all had like a, a group meeting before we were started, and nobody wanted to take the venue manager role, none of the volunteers. And I was like, you know what, screw it, I will <laughs> do it. And so that we had was a little, very exciting night because yeah, that it was, was. and and I and I worked that show, so I was like, yeah, of, co- of course I'll do that. So I was a venue manager for Fletcher for for you know the week, but that was one of the perks is I got to be there for. Uh, that night so it was an excellent excellent show good thank you yeah and and i mean i i've lived in this area i've been in chapel hill for a while live in durham now but i mean just the the festival has been such a cornerstone of the the culture and community here you know we're, we're always so appreciative of 
how great that's been and how, how much well, awesome. they are doing a fabulous job i'm you know i'm just an advisor now yeah, and yeah. they have taken it to new and great heights and i'm very very proud of their of the work that everybody's doing on that festival absolutely yeah. so so what are you working on these days i saw your post on facebook about uh the variety article about midnight cowboy and i was yeah. I had no idea that's so that's so exciting that's what exciting well you know before that um i have a film coming out in june um, it's actually opening theatrically in, on June 18th in New York and LA. It's called The Crime on the Bayou. So The Crime on the Bayou is a story of a 19-year-old Black fisherman who, um, driving past an, a newly integrated school in Plaquemines Parish, Louisiana, sees his nephew and his cousin being what seems to be harassed by four white boys. Mm -hmm. um, this is in the very first month of school integration there. And he stops the car to see what's going on and discovers that they, you know, they're being bullied by these white, these white boys. And he tries to break up the fight. And in doing so, he touches the white boy's arm, telling him to go on home. He gets arrested that night for touching the white boy. And he gets accused of a, I think it's assault and battery, a crime on a, a battery on a minor. And um, and that becomes a major trial for him and for the people in Plaquemines Parish. Um, a young Jewish attorney comes to help him with this trial, defend him. They end up taking it all the way to the Supreme Court because he didn't have a trial by jury. And um, so it's a very, it, for me, it's a, a very important and heartfelt story about um, institutional racism. Uh, something that we're all very interested in these days. Yeah, well, this is such a great point and, and where I wanted to go with you anyway, because as you just said, something we're very uh, all very interested in these days. You've clearly been interested in this for a long time. I really want to learn more about what what has driven you to seek out these kinds of social justice stories. And I'll, t I'll tangent very quickly. Uh, you know, the loving story was everything to me. I'm married to a black woman and raising, you know, biracial children. And so I can't tell you, you know, how important that story was for people like me, for everybody, I would argue, but for people like me to, to, to be told so meaningful and, and, and I'm so appreciative of that, but this is something that's very clear in your work still. What was the thing you know, that- I, I, it, it comes back to something that I think many people feel um, don't necessarily have the opportunity to express it. And that is a, a, a embedded concern about bias in this country, a, a need for greater tolerance, a, great, a need for sensitivity to people who are not, are at the other end of and victims of that kind of intolerance and a desire to try to do something about it. You know, um, I, excuse me, I feel um, very strongly that, you know, as many people who can jump into that arena and try to make a difference should do that. Um, so, you know, people ask me all the time, why is it that I did three, uh, not just the loving story, but also the rape of Reese Taylor, exactly. and Crime on the Bayou, which is ineffective, effectively a, a trilogy. I didn't set out to make a trilogy, right, but right. what it's become. Um, I just think that these are themes in our lives that are with us day in and day out. Um, the story of race in this country is foundational to who we are, you know, um, we are just, you know, that if, if, if we're Americans, then we are in one way or another affected by issues of race, interested in issues of, of bias in this country and 
you know, if, if it, it just drew me, these individuals who, who are central to the story, Mildred Loving, Reese Taylor, and Gary Duncan, um, were particularly attractive to me as mm. heroes because they didn't set out to be heroes. Mm -hmm. They didn't set out to change history. Um, they just did what was right. And, and I felt like it was really important to uplift those stories. Wow, that's a, such a great point, This the, the reluctant hero, right? And we mm -hmm. see that in narrative and in documentary all, all, all the time. It's Rosa Parks, it's Braveheart, it's, you know, this kind right. of like, I'm not out here to do this, but something. Well, actually, some, may, I, may I interrupt you? And please. Interrupt you on one thing, Rosa Parks was not a reluctant hero. Okay, tell she me more. She was an activist. And that's one of the things that comes out in The Rape of Rishi Taylor. Most people don't understand that she was not just a tired seamstress who was... Hmm didn't want to change her seat on the bus. She was actively involved. She was working for the NAACP. She was interested in, she, she was sent to investigate the Rishi Taylor case because that was one of the areas that she was most interested in is the harassment and molestation of women, of black wow. women. So um, she was just the opposite of a reluctant hero. But Reese Taylor definitely was a reluctant hero, right. as was Gary Duncan and Mildred Loving. None of them really wanted this in their lives. It's an interesting point about Rosa Parks because I, I wasn't aware of that. And I suppose that a lot of people aren't. You kind of alluded to that. And it's, that says something to, to the narrative that we've been told. So let me ask you this. When you're facing issues like, like you have faced with some of the stories that you've told or you're addressing these issues, trying to bring light to them, Let's talk a little bit about the power of narrative and power of storytelling to change that narrative. Why is it important? Because you could you could still be an activist without being a storyteller or a filmmaker for these things. Yes. But talk to me a little bit about the power that is held by a story and why you chose that avenue. You know, I think storytelling is critical to our society and to all societies. I mean, it's who we are as human beings. We're storytellers. Um, way before there was the printed word, people were sitting down and they were telling stories. It's the way we communicate with each other, things that are meaningful, sometimes things that are kind of metaphorical that we don't really even understand. Yeah. Um, but the idea that we can actually correct the, um, the incorrect history that has come down to us, particularly in textbooks, you know, kids are brought up with certain stories in through through textbooks in schools, and they're wrong. And so story, I mean, filmmakers have an opportunity. I, I see it as an obligation, but at the very least, it's an opportunity to change the story as it's been told. Mm -hmm. And and let's let's flip that that coin and talk about the consequences or the things that can be destroyed by the inaccurate narratives that that do get passed on like the people who take who get the short end of that stick what what problems can it cause if we don't correct those narratives well that they live under the burden and the cloud of the false story it's it's a total mis, misconception yeah. of who people are you know i mean people who are for instance you go back to the way enslaved people have been treated in narratives, whether it's fiction or, or textbooks, and most importantly in, on film, because that reaches so many people. Um, you know, the, the stereotypes, the demeaning stereotypes, the ways in which people were able to live with the idea of slavery because they thought people who were enslaved were happy. 
you know, that's the most simplistic example I can give you. Yeah. But it's 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 a ridiculous one, and it shows a marked insensitivity on people who depicted people that way and the people who received it and accepted it. Because if you're a compassionate individual and you think about what it might be like to be enslaved, there's no way you could accept that level, that, that type of storytelling. Um, so it says something about the people who accepted it, not just the people who told it. Yeah, it's a great point. So I know that you were, you know, you were running full frame uh, before you started doing your own documentaries. So clearly you had this passion for documentaries. Where, where did that come from? What, what attracted you to the power of documentaries? So much so that, you know, you built this, this festival that has become this, you know, cultural icon, especially here in North Carolina. Um, you know, I, I, first of all, have always loved documentary. I love, mm -hmm. well, first I should say backing up, first of all, I've always loved storytelling yeah. and I've always loved film. And before I was working at Full Frame, I was a still photographer, a, journal, a photojournalist, basically. I worked at the New York Times. So the idea of how information is packaged is important to me. And in a film festival, it really is about the um, presenting of material mm -hmm. and packaging it in a way that people find it exciting and acceptable. One of the things we did at Full Frame is that we created thematic programs. And not a lot of festivals do that. Um, and that was because I wanted an opportunity to be able to acknowledge the films that came before us, to look yeah. back at the history of documentary, but also think of documentary often in a different way. If you, if you create a thematic program, then often it highlights a film in a way that you hadn't thought of before because it fits into that theme. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a great opportunity to look at the curatorial responsibilities of a festival and think about how we can best highlight and shine or shine a light on on certain certain films that we had never even thought of in that particular category um so you know it, it i kind of it, it tied together so many of my interests yeah what about the community aspect so so in the past year so i, I did a narrative short last year um that got accepted to a, a lot of festivals won a couple of small awards but it was in 2020 so none of the festivals were going on it was so bittersweet because i was so happy for our little southern film that we created yeah and then so sad because we couldn't share it with anybody yeah. that's you know such a missed opportunity that's the beautiful thing about festivals so not only you know are we are we showcasing these these different projects or like you say cultivating you know these different projects and programs but you're bringing together artists you're bringing together appreciators of the art and the community how important is that aspect of it to to have this place where we share these stories there's nothing like it i mean right. it's it's hard to it's hard to imagine it not happening and um you know full frame this year is going to be digital again but i think by next year it's going to be back up in person and i think everyone will be very happy mm -hmm. um i used to talk about um the idea of um the, the the kind of gathering around the fireplace to to come together that that the community coming together was like us sitting around a fire and and sharing our histories and our stories and all yeah. of that. And one year it was, I think it was 2005. I can't remember the year of Katrina. Was it 2005? Oh, we, five or six, yeah. yeah. We pulled together very quickly and under a lot of pressure of small sidebar on films that came out of that experience. 
And, and I thought to myself, how healing this might be for people. We weren't, of course, in Louisiana, sure. but even people that were living vic vicariously and empathizing and, and, and compassionate about those people in Louisiana, you know, how, how helpful this might be to have these films that we can look at and share. And as a matter of fact, one of the films that showed up, they came with a, a, a second line brass band and they played after right. the screening of the festival and everybody walked out of Fletcher Hall and followed them out um, onto the square and, and, you know, in downtown Durham. And it was, um, it, it was such a great example of what can happen at a festival that can't happen anywhere else. Yes. So I, I hope you'll, I hope you'll be able to show your film, you know, to audiences at some point in the future. We, we had one that was like a month ago in Shelby, a small little first time festival, but they had a big, you know, big space that they could use so we could all still socially distance. And it was not the same, but it was nice just to be there and see it on, on a big screen. Um, but you know how it is and you, you move on to other projects. And so it, it's okay, but it was just like, the, you know, we're getting know, all- you we know. some of the same. I mean, I showed in a number of, the Crime on the Bayou, we've shown in a number of festivals and it was digital. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we had to suffer through that, but it does, there's only one upside and that is that if it's digital, it can reach more people than just in your community. So yeah. you actually end up with a larger audience, but um, I'll be really happy to go back to in-person screenings, which we will do when we open a crime in the bio in June. Awesome. That's so exciting. What's What are the different challenges and the different opportunities presented in telling stories with photographs and telling stories with documentary film? Well, there, I mean, ideally you're using both. I, you're, okay. I, you're using both. I mean, there's there are great opportunities. I mean, if you're if, if it's if it's a historical story, mm -hmm. um, and you're using archival stills and archival footage, sometimes all you have are the stills, and sometimes mm -hmm. all you have is the footage. I find archival anything, any you know, archival stills and archival footage um, to be a gift, totally. and, and I feel like there's just such a wonderful wonderful sense of going back in time and being there with the the people who shot that footage and took those stills mm -hmm. and immersing the film the audience in that time and place um it's i just i just think it's magical but coming from you know your your past as being a photographer and then kind of and then transitioning in into filmmaking do you find that you're able to really uh, carry out you know any mission or purpose you have via storytelling more effectively do you miss uh, photography do you still go back oh, to it i see what you're saying yeah, well, yeah. i think you know because you've always been a storyteller and you, and you said that and right. you know but you the have photography can it, it allows you to live with that moment longer than the footage so right. it's kind of like a painting mm -hmm. so if, if a photograph really is um if it's conceived and it's composed in a way that's effective, then it draws a, a viewer into it and it, it does kind of live with you. It, it has an impact that is different than moving footage. Moving footage has a different kind of impact, do, you know? Do you but think that might be because when one, when an, an audience member, when someone sees a photograph, they kind of have to fill in the gaps of that story themselves. You, you feel like that might be why? I think that's very, yes, that's, that could be that you, you are definitely, we call it full frame, full frame, because we wanted to make the point that we're not leaving anything out, that, you know, it's the full frame. 
And, and that was why we, we named it that. But um, still, there are things outside of the frame that one has to fill in. And that's with footage too. It's even with a documentary film. You know, you can only tell so much of the story. So the audience member brings something to that experience, whether it's a film or still, you're always going to engage with it as an audience member. And um, that's what, what, what we all hope when we make these movies, that, that we're drawing people in and we're asking them to engage. Absolutely. Uh, I've also noticed that with your work, you, you've you've got these projects that like we've already talked about that are very driven by racial issues, social justice issues. And then you also seem to, you know, we mentioned briefly the Midnight Cowboy piece. Um, and then you have the, the, the project you did on uh, Sydney Lumet, you know, years ago. You also seem to have this attraction to stories about other storytellers or other stories that are, that are being told. Can we explore that a little bit? Because I thought that was so interesting. It's like, you, you almost go between these like heavy, you know, racial stories and then kind of diving into other other great storytellers. Is, it, is that is that I, accurate? Yes, it is. But I think they're they're more connected than they may appear. Ooh, let's on hear the surface. Um, I also did a film called Afternoon of a Fawn about Tana Killer Claire, a, a ballet dancer who was stricken with polio at the height of her career. Mm -hmm. um, really beautiful dancer and, and the muse to George Balanchine and Jerome Robbins. Um, so I, I am interested in stories where even the storyteller is kind of heroic in a way that, that there is a message in their work that speaks to the larger community and a set of uh, and the and a larger morality, so that you know Sidney Lumet um, was very concerned about what was fair, and and what was what made a righteous person, and that often was someone who stood up to the mob, stood up to people who were oppressing other people. Um, that's not so different than these stories that deal with race, when you think about it. So he was, he was very concerned about people being treated fairly and those people and, and those heroes in life that actually stand up to um, people who are um, oppressors. Um, Midnight Cowboy, I'm hoping we will be exploring, we're, this is not gonna be the making of Midnight Cowboy, right. which is really about the, the world of Midnight Cowboy and the um, message that comes through mm -hmm. about the connection of individuals the people that, that that connect to each other and save each other through those connections. So it also deals with compassion and love. And I think that's what all these films deal with. So um, I, I'm not sure I can tell you why I go from one to the other, but th those stories speak to me in some way. No, and, and I love that. And like you said, maybe on the surface, it seems like, oh, they're, they're not as connected, but I always love to learn about because of course they're, they're connected within you. You know, it's the same kinds of things that are drawing you to them. And I think that's, that's very, very interesting. When you, because uh, The Loving Story was your first film, is that right? That's right. Which yeah. I made, by the way, with um, people in Durham, especially Elizabeth Haviland James. Who yeah, was I love her. Yeah, I almost worked with her uh, a few years ago. She was uh, working on a project and looking for uh, a producer to, to help her on it, but it, it fell through. But yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, she is. So she she and I did that together. She was my editor and my producer and everything. Um, and um, yeah, so that was my first film. What was that leap like? I know you obviously you've been working in full frame for a while. You've been surrounded and immersed, you know, in documentary culture, but it's still it's still a leap to 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 do it yourself. 
Well, it's, it's, I was immersed in the culture, but I also was very involved in selecting the films. So I looked at it, virtually every film that came in, almost every film. Um, and so I began to develop, a, I hope I already had, but I, <laughs> I, I think I perfected a critical eye. Yeah. And began to feel, I, 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 I found myself veering away from films that were made to look like documentaries, you know, films that were kind of satisfying the requirements of what we think is a documentary and looking for things that were fresh and exciting and um, and that told stories that were that had value, but also that were doing them in unusual ways. And so I found myself kind of thinking about that a lot when we started The Loving Story. And um, so I knew what I didn't want to do. I wasn't always sure what I did want to do. Mm -hmm. um, I also had, you know, as a photographer, I had an eye for what I felt would be effective visuals. We were very fortunate to have the incredible footage um, shot by Hope, Hope uh, Ryden, um, beautiful verite footage shot by her. So a lot of the, it was, it was a film that was meant to happen it was you know I, I felt like we were we were almost fated to make that story tell that story mm -hmm. um you know Obama was running for the presidency and we were dealing with the proposition eight in California against right. against same-sex marriage and um and so there were a lot of elements that came together that made it the right time to tell it but um you know, yeah, if there was a learning curve, there's no question. And I was very fortunate to be working with Elizabeth, who had who had made documentaries before. Um, and both of us had spent a lot of time looking at documentaries. So we were we were busy schooling ourselves. And she was a she was tremendous support for me and in, in, in making that film. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah, she she's great. Um, in the past 10 years since that, how do you think the world of documentary has evolved, has grown? Oh boy, I. That's a that's a big question. It that's is a big a question, and it's a big question, and I don't know if we even have enough time to <laughs> go with it. Um, in many ways, there have been many many more opportunities mm -hmm. for documentary filmmakers. It was always considered when we started full frame. One one of the things we were trying to do was dispel the idea that documentaries were medicinal. Mm -hmm. You know. They were you take your medicine and watch your documentary. Um, so I think I think that that's continued the growth of, of uh, exciting ways of telling documentaries. The form is being pushed and pulled and broken all the time. Um, and I think the other important thing that we're seeing, um, particularly in the last year, is the opportunity for more people of color and uh, to step into that arena. I think documentaries have always been recept more receptive to diversity than maybe the Hollywood world and future film world. Um, but there's never, you can never go far enough on that in that score. So I think we're seeing more of that happen. Um, so I think, you know, the, the changes, the developments, the growth of documentary filmmaking is, is just a good thing all around. Another big question. Uh, do you think that, do you think that with the growth that we've seen over the past 10 years, do you think that we're, are we making any headway in, 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 in what we're effectively trying to achieve? Those of us that are telling stories of social justice, those of us that are trying to affect positive change in the world, you know, sometimes it's tough with what we've been through the past few years. 
sometimes it doesn't feel like it, let's be honest. Right. Um, and, and let me also actually back up and say that even though I feel like there has been growth in the um, opportunities for diverse filmmakers, that's not enough. There's yeah. much, much more that has to happen. Um, but I think that, I, I think with any, look, you know, it, it costs money to make a good movie. It costs money to make any movie. <laughs> it costs money to make a, you know, this. it just seems like it's always hard to, to garner enough support financially. But you have to work hard at it. I mean, it's a business like anything else. And you have to, you know, pull together the right elements to try to attract the support, the fundraising, the grants, the, you know, the equity, whatever it is, it's not easy. And it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> that part's definitely true. How important is it for pe people of color, people, you know, people who traditionally haven't had those opportunities and those doors easily open for them to start to tell their own stories. I mean, it's very important. And, and let me just say that, uh, you know, I've, I have been fortunate to have and, and feel honored to have told some of these stories that deal with race. Um, but I feel like there needs to be, you know, I'm, I'm ready to kind of back away a, a bit and, and make sure that the, the stories that are coming up now are told by people of color. Um, and I, but I think it's not just who tells the story, but who also um, sits at the table. Yeah. Um, I think that there are um, wonderful and skilled filmmakers of every race out there, um, particularly people of color, need the opportunity to express themselves and tell their story. But I think there have to be more people in the industry that are making the decisions about who tells stories and what stories are being told. And so it's not just, I honestly don't think it's just about being at the table, but maybe, you know, leading the table, being the, being the leaders. Um, so we'll, you know, we'll see. I think we're, we're watching, I'm hoping we're seeing a, a seismic change in our society where this is being recognized across the board. And, you know, our, our team is all in favor of amplifying that as much as possible. Absolutely. What other ways do you see documentary storytelling or storytelling in general continuing to evolve with some of the new technology that we have, whether it's VR or things like that? Are there, are there things coming down the, the, the pipeline that you see that could impact the way we tell these stories? Well, I think, you know, technology has been changing ever since we went back to the early days of Filmmaking. I, I mean, my dear friend D.A. Pennybaker, who passed away two years ago, is, you know, was at the forefront of inventing a camera that that you could hold on your shoulder and sync sound to this the picture. Um, and, and so we're seeing things changing constantly. Um, we use better lenses than we used to use. <laughs> Rex Miller is 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 my DP on, on many of my projects. And, you know, he walks in with a new camera. And we, and we see the results, you know, our new film is in 4K and it's just beautiful. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I glory at the opportunities that are in front of us. Yeah, Rex was doing some VR work, wasn't he? Was that yeah. with the Arthur Ashe piece or? That's right, he did. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I remember seeing, see, uh, seeing him post about that or something like that. 
so what do you what do you uh, anything other than midnight cowboy project that you're excited about what's what's coming up next that's, you know, that's now that... what i can really talk about yet okay got it, got it got it yeah i mean there are a couple of other things that we're working on but um i think we'll save that for another chat i hope yeah yeah hopefully um any other ways that you feel like you want to pursue storytelling is it are you happy in the film format do you ever see yourself making another transition like you did no, I, I, I love making films. Um, it's arduous work. And <laughs> there are times when I feel like, well, I wouldn't mind just grabbing my, my camera and going out and taking some stills or do a, do a little writing. Sometimes I do a little, you know, creative writing. But at the end of the day, I think it's always going to be films. I think it's, it's an incredible art form. Um, and I, I am really feeling so blessed to have been able to develop the skills fairly late in life and get out there and start making movies and um, that they they seem to have been well received and resonated so I just want to keep at it for as long Absolutely. as I can. To, to that point because it is arduous it does as you said earlier it's not for the faint of heart there's a lot that goes into it I'm, I'm in uh, you know submitting and applying for grants as we speak right now and is yeah it's not not a fun process but for you said an interesting point I would like to you know grab a camera and run out there and sometimes I think that now that we have the technology we have, people can do that. A lot of the people that listen to the show are, are beginners. They're not necessarily filmmakers, but they may be using documentary film in their business and their nonprofits and their social media, just mm -hmm. storytelling, video storytelling. So to someone who is a beginner and is unfamiliar with that process, and maybe they're not even telling a big story that they need to raise a lot of money for, do you have any advice for them about just capturing and telling stories to, you know, to get them out there to, to tell these old untold stories, to try to create change, even in a small community based level, we all have access to a lot of the same tools and we can take these, these days right. and, and document things. So like to that person, what do you, what do you suggest? Okay, what is go your... out and tell the story. Don't have, don't, don't take no for an answer. Mm -hmm. Tell something that's personally important to you. Mm decide what it is you know you said that all my films are connected in some way because they're uh, they're by me right and and i agree with you i feel like every one of these films that i've worked on um, and hope to work on in the future are all very personally meaningful to me and i think that's the most important thing i can pass on as we end this conversation that um that the film the stories that one tells don't do it because you think you're going to sell it don't do it because you think it's going to be, you know, the next big thing on YouTube. Tell it because the story has meaning to you, that you can bring something of yourself personally, emotionally, intellectually to it and um, just get out there and tell it. And, and then it'll it, and then look at the best work. Don't don't look at bad stuff. Look at the very best work to inspire. You know, I when I a long, long time ago, I was I was talking to someone about my photography and asking you know, I don't, I don't remember who said it exactly, but they said, don't waste time looking at everything. Let mm. other people, let people that know more about this particular world, let them curate for you, look at the very best things, make up your own mind, you know, be critical. I'm not saying you should just let somebody else feed you with what to watch, but you know, there's an awful lot of stuff out there and you can waste your time looking at a lot of bad stuff. So, um, you know, be, pick a few filmmakers who inspire you, follow their work, see what they've done in their career. But most importantly, tell the story that's meaningful to you. 
I love that. I think that's the perfect place to end. Uh, Nancy, thank you so much again for your time, for your work that you've done over the years, for letting me manage Fletcher Hall 15 years ago. <laughs> I'm so glad you were there. It was yeah, no, it was awesome. I appreciate it. And I appreciate your time today. Okay. Thank you so much, Rain. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. My name is Rain Bennett. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. If you're already a subscriber and you're enjoying the show, give us a review and let us know the value that you've gotten from it. We love to hear from our listeners and learn about the benefits that they're getting from the show. That's what fuels us and that's what fuels the show. And if you've already subscribed and you've already reviewed it and you think there's someone else that would benefit from listening to this show, please, please share it with them. The more we grow, the more we can help you grow. And that's what we're here to do. Join us next time on the Storytelling Lab. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 